Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we're spending time with Greg Gottesman, who's the managing director and co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, which is a startup studio and venture capital fund based out of Seattle, Washington. Greg, you and I go way back, and I'm very excited to have you on our podcast today to learn more about your newest business. Well, it's not so new, but you've been a VC for a long time, and now you're doing a labs business. So I thought, let's start with that. Tell us about what is Pioneer Square Lab. Pioneer Square Labs is a startup studio and a venture capital fund. And the unique thing about it is the studio front, to your point, the Nasus. We create companies from scratch. So half of the time there are ideas, half of the time an entrepreneur brings us an idea, but 100% of the time we're building these companies from the ground up. So we have a team of developers and data scientists and designers and business analysts and other sorts of folks that can build companies from the ground up. And we've built now 27 companies that have been venture backed and spun out. And it's just been a heck of a lot of fun. And in terms of the internal driven ideas, do you ideate based on themes? And if so, what are they or how does that work? Yeah, there are certainly themes that we feel more comfortable with. So we tend to obviously be very focused on information technology. So we're not doing life sciences or biotech unless there's a information technology angle to it. We tend to like things having to do with AI, machine learning. And then, for example, one theme that we spend a lot of time on is automating legacy processes. Originally, we automated the title insurance process. We automated the immigration process. We automated the debt collection process. I'm looking at now automating the bankruptcy process. We've done that again and again. There tends to be these are legacy areas where there's lots of money floating around, not a lot of technology, and those tend to be ideas that resonate well with Pioneer Square Labs in particular, and we have a lot of expertise there. We have some expertise in marketplaces. So I was the co-founder and the original CEO of a company called Rover.com and have just spent a lot of time over the years in marketplaces. And so we have done several marketplace businesses, but we're open to looking at ideas across the spectrum as long as they have software and information technology and the, the variety makes it fun. Talk a little bit about Rover.com, because if I remember correctly, that was part of the spark that got you thinking about a labs business, right? So tell us the story, of because you were a VC before with Madrona in Seattle, and then you'd kind of transitioned to Pioneer School. What was the catalyst for that transition? Rover was certainly part of it. We had a family dog, Ruby, and we couldn't find anyone to watch Ruby. We were going out of town. Many of you who are dog owners may have had this experience and we decided that we needed to take this particular trip. And so we had to, for the first time, leave her at a kennel. And that was the worst customer experience and worst experience I can remember in a long time. The car trip back was late. And so we had to keep her there for an extra night. They weren't very nice about that. We picked up Ruby. She had scratches, kennel cough. And so I went to a startup weekend and I said, 
I just had the worst customer experience of my life. I bet you there's someone right down the street, a neighbor that would love to have taken Ruby. We could have paid that person because kennels are very expensive and it would have been a better experience for us and for Ruby and for the person taking care of Ruby, who's a wonderful dog. And pitched this idea to start up weekend and the rest is history. We ended up putting a team together and now it's the largest pet services company in the world. So having built that at Madrona and seeing that we could do something like that to catalyze something like that was inspiring. I had so much fun and have had so much fun being a part of the Rover story. Obviously I'm a small part because ultimately much smarter people than I took it over and ran with it. Aaron Easterly, the CEO, joined very shortly after we started and really has done an incredible job. But that process of starting a company, finding the right team, putting the pieces in place was really invigorating, inspiring to me. And so uh, I launched while I was a general, I was a founding partner of Madrona, was there for 20 years. I started something called Madrona Venture Labs, which was a precursor to Pioneer Square Labs to see if we could systematize the starting of these companies. And then ultimately felt like we could do it at even more scale. And that's how Pioneer Square Labs started. And is the process of starting these businesses, is it really what it sounds like? Do you sit around and say, hey, what are some great ideas? Or do you have a process by which you unearth opportunities by talking, say, to industry experts? What, what is that like? It's all of the above. We definitely have ideation sessions. We definitely talk to industry experts. People come to us with ideas that we've worked with before that maybe are even earlier, pre-pre-seed, if you will, and say, hey, I want to work with you guys on starting this thing where you've had a lot of success. But over 90% of the ideas that we start, we kill. So this isn't like, oh, we've had this idea and everyone is good. In fact, most of the ideas that I come up with are terrible in retrospect, and we test them. And so we've become best in the world at testing ideas. That's the validation process, both sort of manual and digital. So we do a lot of setting up sites and landing pages and seeing what tens of thousands of customers can do. These platforms like Facebook and Google and LinkedIn are purpose-built really for this kind of, of easy testing of ideas. And so we leverage those like crazy to figure out if there's any signal in these ideas. And 90% of the time, what we find is we thought there'd be customer interest, but there's not. And then for that 10% of time, you know, we dig in and, and start a company. And that's why so far, uh, 100% of the companies that we've spun out of Pioneer Square Labs have been venture funded because we're doing a lot of testing. We're killing a lot of the ideas before they turn into companies. And the ones that make it through that gauntlet tend to be pretty good or tend to be at least good enough to get that early product market fit. And you guys have the venture fund as well. Did the labs side come first or did you structure them together at the start? How did you structure that and think through that? We wanted to get the studio right first. And so we started with the studio. Some companies do it the other way around. Obviously at Madrona, it was the other way around. But we started with the studio wanting to perfect that process. So spent two years really trying to get that process of a studio right. And then we launched the venture fund now we've just raised our second fund, which is $100 million seed and Series A fund. That fund invests in studio companies, but we never lead around for conflict reasons. We want other people to set the terms, but we can participate in those rounds. And then we also, for things having nothing to do with the studio, then we can lead those deals. But it's nice to have the fund to be able to participate in the, in the studio companies and to look at deals that, frankly, a lot of entrepreneurs 
aren't right for the studio because we take meaningful equity. We also give meaningful equity to our co-founders, if you will, in the process. But some founders say, I don't want to give up that much equity to a studio. And we may think that's an exceptional founder with an exceptional idea. And we love being able to invest in, in those types of opportunities too. So what we're looking for at Pioneer Square Labs and Pioneer Square Ventures are the best entrepreneurs, the very best in the world. And we have a lot of ways that we can work with the most exceptional founders. We can work with you in a studio concept, and maybe it's our idea, maybe it's your idea, but you want some help getting that idea to where it can be venture backed. Or maybe you have an idea that's a little bit more mature, ready for venture capital, and then that we can use our more traditional venture fund for that. So we, what we're trying to do is work with the very best entrepreneurs that we possibly can. And if we do that, we think we'll be successful. Studio as a business was tried during the dot-com and we all remember the internet capital group days with a lot of hype and then it flopped. And so now it's come back and there's a lot more of these type of businesses. So I'm curious, what do you think makes it a viable business model now and a viable approach to building businesses that you couldn't do, say, 20 years ago? Well, obviously things have changed. I think we're leveraging a lot of the tools and technology that weren't available there. I mentioned Facebook and Google and Amazon Web Services. And your ability to test and try out ideas is so much greater now than it was then. So we can try and have hundreds of ideas and really test and test. That was impossible before when you didn't have an Amazon Web Services. It was just much more expensive to try things. And so I do think it's different now. That being said, I think most studios will struggle. And I think the number one reason is what we've already talked about, which is not killing things fast enough. You have to be crazy, maniacal about killing things that aren't working. And what will kill a studio quickly is if you sp the opportunity cost of spending too much time on a bad idea. And most people that start these studios tend to be product people because product people love to build products and they fall in love with the product. And the worst thing in many ways that you can do as a studio, someone who's managing a studio is to fall in love with a product or an idea because you have to be able to take a step back and say, hey, relative to other things we can be spending our limited resources on, does this make sense? And so as venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and operators, I think we hopefully try to strike the right balance. We're not perfect. We have spent too long on a couple of ideas and I regret that. But I think a lot of studios will keep pounding away on an idea that they should have killed many months ago. And that opportunity cost of not moving on to that next great thing is very significant. Makes sense. And you guys focus on the Pacific Northwest. Talk to us a little bit about that market and what the rationale was behind that. Well, so much of the success of a studio and a venture capital fund is about who you can invest in. And we mm -hmm. have everyone involved in Pioneer Square Labs. I have a group of incredible partners who have built their lives and their careers and their venture capital careers in the Pacific Northwest. And so what I think we're best in the world at is starting companies in the Pacific Northwest. And so if you are going to start a company in Silicon Valley, honestly, I can't say that we're best in the world to help you with that. But I can say with confidence that if you are starting a company in Seattle or in the Pacific Northwest, we are the best firm in the world for you to work with. We are the best at recruiting talent. We're the best at getting those initial customers. We're the best at finding you and being able to sit down with you 
on a moment's notice to talk about a key issue. We're the best at finding you other angel investors, other investors who invest in the Pacific Northwest. So if you're starting something in our backyard, then we think we can help you better than anyone else. And so that's our unique story. I think I tell this to companies all the time, but it's so important to be best in the world at something. And that's what we're best in the world at. And so if you're an entrepreneur and trying to figure out where should I go and get capital, I have a lot of choices. We think we have an incredibly powerful, compelling story about why we can help you more than anyone else. Do you want to pick a company maybe and give us a case study of how you came up with it within Pioneer Square Labs and where it is now? You mentioned some of the businesses, but just you know, pick one just so we can. Sure. One of my favorites is Boundless. And it's the world's largest online immigration company. And so this was a problem that, frankly, all of us who have been in this technology business have seen this, talked to hundreds of people who have gone through the visa process. Mm -hmm. And I would say, without exception, everyone says, that was the worst experience of my life. It was terrible. It was opaque. It was long. It didn't make any sense. It was a lot of paperwork. And it was just a terrible process. And so we started working at Pioneer Square Labs and saying, hey, could we automate this process? Could we take some of those pieces and create more transparency and, and automate them and be smarter about that? In the meantime, I had been talking with this incredible entrepreneur from Amazon named Xiao Wang, and we had been talking about ideas and thinking about ideas, and he was approaching me about different things, and I was approaching him, and we wanted to work together on something. And I mentioned that we had started work on this. And within about a minute, he looked at me and said, that's it. That's the idea. That's the one I've been looking for. So he took a week off of vacation at Amazon and never went back, became the CEO very early from really from point zero and really has done an incredible job growing that business into, again, the largest provider of visas online in, in, in the world. And just raised a, a big new round of capital. And obviously with the Biden administration, that company is really poised to do incredibly great things. So is this general visas or visas like H-1B that for that people need to work in the States? We do all family-based visas. Uh, we don't do work-based visas. We will eventually. It will be for all of us eventually. But right now it's family-based visas. And again, part of this process, the NASIS, to what we talked about earlier of testing and validating is we tested, we sent we put up landing pages and for both H-1Bs and, and spousal visas and every type of visa you can imagine and said, hey, where's the customer demand? Where are people clicking? And once they get to the site, how much do they follow through? And what we found was that initially spousal visas were the ones that made the most sense in terms of being able to acquire customers inexpensively and serve them well. And so that was where we started and we've expanded and ultimately we'll keep working to help immigrants with, I think, an incredible service. We've been doing this now for a couple of years. And what's incredible about it is that we've helped a lot of people save a lot of money. And I think the rates of, of success are better than anyone else. So feel very positive about that company and what it's trying to do. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a wonderful experience. And so I know you and Thanasis obviously go way back, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. I know you mentioned Rover, but I also learned that you wrote three books I have some questions about the reality TV <laughs> comment that's on the website. I have a lot of questions about that, but I guess let's start with your background. Well, gosh, the NASIS is much more interesting than I am. When I was in college, I wrote the best-selling college survival guide at that point of all time. 
And it's not Ernest Hemingway. It's not a great piece of literature, but it was written by students for students at a time where there was a hole in the market. And after that, I wrote- And what was the idea behind it? You just thought of that one day? I went to Stanford and my mom was putting on a basically or a program to help kids think about how to get into schools. And she said, hey, why don't you go to the Stanford bookstore and see what books you can find about which are the good colleges, how to get in, and so forth. And so I went looking in the Stanford bookstore and I saw a lot of books about which were the best colleges, but I didn't see any interesting ones or any relevant ones about what, how to survive once you get there. And so I think what most people would do is say, hey, there are no books about how to survive when you get there. And what I said was, I should write one. So... I had done a lot of writing and together I, I, I grabbed a bunch of friends and it has hundreds of anecdotes and other things, fun stuff in that book and grabbed a bunch of friends to help me with that process and wrote this book. So that was the first one. And then when I went to law school, my wife and I wrote law school survival. And then when I came back, we did high school survival. So I can't say these aren't, I again, love this the great trio. American novels. I mean, <laughs> I yeah, know, there was a trio. It's great. Yeah. So I, I, had a, I had a great publisher. They really pushed, you know, pushed me to write a couple more. And so, yeah, that was super fun. So across all the survival themed books, is there one key takeaway of basically how to survive school? Well, first of all, the book is old now. Like it still talks about, you would laugh reading some of the chapters at this point because it was published in 1991. But a piece of advice that I think still resonates with me and I tell my, my I have two kids now in college is choose courses based on professors, not on the title of the course. And it sounds obvious to us on this podcast, but for most students, they don't think like that. They're like, oh gosh, that seems like it'd be a great course because it's in an area I'm really interested in. And the teacher might be terrible. And what you realize is as you grow older is how important people are right. and how important the professor is. And a great professor can make the worst underwater basket weaving can be fantastic if you have the right professor. And so for example, a tip is, choose courses based on the professor, not on the title. But that would be a type of advice that you would get. That's a great tip. So you're a published author three times over, successful founder. What else? <laughs> You've done a lot in your career, so I'd love to hear more. I also hopefully have tried to be a really good dad. That's really important to me. I've got three incredible kids and you know an incredible wife. And I spend a lot of time trying to be a good dad. And my time, as is Thanasis, is running short here. I've got one who will be going into a senior year of high school, and then we'll be empty nesters. And it's bittersweet because as I think about the last 20 plus years of my life, other than spending a lot of time on work, that's been the most important thing, or that has been including work, the most important thing in my life. And I think this transition to not having kids anymore will be really interesting. I think for those of us who are now, and I know Thanasis is facing this too, are now facing this new reality of, hey, we've got to reinvent ourselves a little bit and figure out what we're going to do with this extra time. And I hope that the next chapter can be as meaningful as the last one was. I love being a dad. I have two boys and a girl and each one presents its challenges and its exhilarations. And I'll still obviously be a dad, but not having them home will be. I, I have a feeling there's going to be a survival of empty nesting. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. I mean, might as well. 
my wife, I said once to her, I said, hey, we should write the parenting survival. She's like, we're not any good at this. So we are definitely not going to write. Sounds like you guys are. She was totally right about that. So we do not have any expertise to to share on that. What do you think about Gen Z? And it's our generations like millennials are very different than Gen Xers and Gen Zs are even more different. Is that, are these like longitudinal kind of differences? Do they play a factor in the things that you invest in or think about or problems to solve and all that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think they do play a role. For example... Teenage girls tend to share a lot on social media. And so they're an interesting target market for certain kinds of consumer businesses. But that's an insight that if you were going to start a business and you needed to have something where you wanted to have a lot of sharing or virality, and you were thinking, should I go after teenage boys or teenage girls or moms? Or I mean, So those are some insights that you might get. They have a different kind of mentality when it comes to work and expectations and the values that the workplace is supposed to have. And I think there is some conflict a little bit. I talked to a lot of CEOs who have younger folks and I have them at Pioneer Square Labs. And one of the challenges is, for example, around the Black Lives Matter movement. I think, at least for me, I felt very strongly that there was something important there and and that was happening. But then the question is, what do you do about it? And from our generation, Thanasis, it was very much about before you tweet something, you do something, right? If I tweet something, it's typically like, hey, I've done this thing. I'm not opining on it until I've actually taken action. Whereas I think for this Gen Z, as you said, there's something about actually saying what you believe in as being important. And I was wrong about that. So for example, it took us a couple extra days to, to put out the Black Lives Matters tweet. And I think some of the folks, for example, at PSL, I know at some companies were like, hey, say what you believe in, you don't need to actually have then taken action. What I hope is that, the, that there can be a combination. So I think it's important to both say what you believe, and you can do that on Twitter, but then also take action to back up. And so what I've seen a lot, for example, with, with this new movement is a lot of tweeting and not a lot of action behind it. And so to me, I feel like it has to be both or you shouldn't do it. And that's a little different yeah. Uh, than this new generation. And so what we've tried to do is take real action steps behind that. As long as we're going to say we believe or have this set of values, then we've got to back that up with real action steps. And my sense is that as you realize that as you move on in life, that it's not just about what you say, but it's also the underlying actions that you take to, to support those things. And one of the things I try to say is, hey, if we're going to say these things, or if a company is going to say these things, then you have to measure it, you have to back it up, and it has to be meaningful. My grandmother used to say, silence is golden, which she used to say, if you don't have anything productive or thing to add to the conversation, you don't necessarily need to need to, to say it. I think that's different. So you guys just think about my grandmother, who was this incredible woman way ahead of her time. And she was just so adamant about, hey, if you're going to speak, back it up. Yep. And so I struggle a little bit with that and, and how to get that right. And, I don't, and I'm sure I mess up a lot on that. You touched on the importance of people and working with the best founders. What distinguishes the best founder in your mind in terms of certain characteristics and all of that? Yeah. So I wish there, if there was an answer, then this venture capital thing would be pretty easy if there was a specific answer. But what I look for is a history of, of excellence in past endeavors I think 
there's no substitute for calling people that have worked with a person directly, getting a sense, is this person a star? Are they a hard worker? Are they smart? Do they have self-awareness so that they can improve and build a smart team around them? That's, by the way, a, a sort of a, a non-intuitive one. I really like to work with founders and CEOs who are self-aware, because if you understand your strengths and your weaknesses, you can put together a team that fills holes for you. And if you don't have good self-awareness, then you tend to hire people that are a lot like you, or you don't tend to fill holes quite as well. So I really interview and think about that quality. And then if I'm on a board, I really think about and work with the, the leader, the CEO, about, hey, where are the holes that we can help fill and try to provide that perspective? But again, founders can come in in all shapes and sizes and history of excellence can be across different kinds of things. But what I tend to, to really look for is, is people that have worked for that person before. And this gets to a question you'll ask later, but the best piece of advice I ever got was, who do you know, Greg, in your life? This was from Ted Dintersmith, who's a venture capitalist. And he said, who do you know to a group of us, who do you know that if they came to you and said, I'm going to start a company, that without hearing another word, you'd reach into their back pocket, pull out a checkbook, write a $25,000, $50,000 check, something meaningful, hand it across the table and say, what's the idea? In other words, who's so incredible that you would invest in that person without even knowing the idea that he or she was going to be working on. And to me, there's something tangible, but also intangible about that. And so that's what you're looking for. People that you would bet on no matter what. So when I'm interviewing or doing reference checks, I always ask that, would you bet on this person without even knowing what the idea was? And you get, it, that tends to be a really interesting question. You tend to get really good answers from that. I would imagine. It's a good one. So now we're going to switch over into our four standard question segment. And this is just something that we ask all of our guests in an attempt to get to know you better. And we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first question is the MBCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? Well, we talked about this earlier. To me, I'd like to see us as an industry be even more aggressive about advocating for immigration. The secret of the United States, in my opinion, of our success over these over the last hundred years or so has more to do with immigration, I think, than anything else. What we've been incredibly fortunate because of our great universities is that the best and brightest of the world have come here often to study, and then they have tended to stay. And those folks have, have been responsible for creating some of the world's greatest businesses and greatest opportunities and greatest technologies. And I feel like We've lost our way a little bit in terms of understanding how fundamental that is to our country, to venture capital, to our future, to our children's future. And so I just don't think we're banging the tables loudly enough to say how important it is to keep being that beacon for the best and brightest to want to come here. Because as soon as folks decide, I want to stay in China, I want to stay in India, I want to stay wherever in Africa, I want to stay wherever I come from, because the United States doesn't seem as welcoming, I think that's the first step towards us losing our most valuable asset. 
So the thing that I would advocate more for is, is much all of us banging the table, talking to our representatives and explaining how important immigration is for venture capital, for technology, for entrepreneurship, for jobs. And I just don't think we do it even a, even a thousandth as much as we should be for how important it is. That's my Absolutely. Idea. No, that's a great answer. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? I've been teaching for the last 21 years at the University of Washington, and I enjoy it so much. I probably would say I teach entrepreneurship, probably a professor. Maybe I, as the NASA's knows, I have a JD and an MBA. Maybe I would teach law or business or entrepreneurship, but I, I love teaching. I, it just gives, I get so much more from teaching than I actually feel like I give back as a professor, but I really enjoy that. I am also one of those people though, that would love to do a hundred different jobs. And I have anxiety that I'm not going to be able to do all the exciting things that I'd love to, to do before. I would love to be a high school teacher. I would love to be a judge. I would love to be a defense attorney. I would love to be, there's so many things that I think would be fun and exciting. I'm one of those people. And I think that's what makes hopefully a decent venture capitalist is I'm extremely curious about all these different jobs. And I frankly would love to try all, so many different things. But if you had to choose one, I'd probably be a, a professor. And then because I'm not good enough to be a professional golfer. Greg and I have played golf many times together. <laughs> and I'm much worse than him. He and I both are, well, we could play until the end of time and it wouldn't matter. No, you're much better than me. That's for sure. <laughs> Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? Well, this is an easy one. It's my dad. He's a surgeon and he was a, a great father. And what I think is special about him is that I've learned from him is so generous with his time and so supportive of his, obviously his, we, I have two brothers of all of us growing up and then of his grandchildren. And I just admire how he prioritizes family and his time in a way that makes me feel special and makes his grandchildren feel special and how generous he is around that. And it's something I aspire to, to be like him as a dad and like him as a grandfather, if I'm so lucky. I'm sure he's exceptionally proud of you. Number four is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, we talked about that earlier. I have another one. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> to, to, to me, everything is about people. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that as venture capitalists, we get the good fortune to meet with so many awesome people and who are going through a career transition. And most of the time, I don't think they think about, they don't prioritize what they're looking for in the right way. Most of the time, it's about what company should I work for? What job title should I have? What's the compensation going to be? And I always say, who are you going to be working with? especially if you're starting out in a career, because who is much more important than what? And if you can somehow find yourself around incredible people and surround yourself with incredible people, that's the most important thing. And I tell my own kids this, I'm like, who are you going to be working with? It should be question number one, two, three, four, and five. And then everything else should be much more distant. I feel like people, I just think it's for some reason, our minds don't allow us to think that way. But that's really the most, as you think about your own career and satisfaction, most of the time it has more to do with who you've been working with than what you've actually been doing. And so again, that piece of advice around 
who do you know that you would bet on no matter what is just a, a, a part of that. And then of course, when you're choosing a new career, you're even more valuable than your money, how you're going to spend your limited time. And again, choosing based on people when it comes to your career, I think is just so critical. Right. There's a big theme there in terms of things that we've talked about in the podcast, for sure, too. And number five is, because I'm going to, you knew I was going to come back to this, favorite reality show, because I'm dying to know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have so many. Um, gosh. Uh, is it Bravo? I've been into most reality <laughs> shows. I, I like the ones like the, recently I've been into the, the survival ones. I've watched pretty yep. much all those. Those are great. Where you get put in some faraway place and then how long can you survive? Those are pretty addictive. I do still watch American Idol occasionally, not as much as I used to. I was a big Survivor fan back when that was popular. I don't know. It's fun to sit down with. And sometimes, especially if you can do it with some family members and you can poke fun a little bit. And the other one I watched recently, which is really good, was the therapy one on, I think it was on Showtime or where where it's the clinical therapist and you, and it digs in deep to all these people's relationship. That was a fun one too. So you can see that, yes, I still watch a little reality TV and I think it can be fun in doses for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Greg, thank you very much for joining us today. We enjoyed learning about Pioneer Square Labs and your favorite reality shows. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you. And Thanasis has been such an incredible friend and supporter and golfing buddy and fellow section mate. And it's just really a pleasure, Thanasis, to spend time with you. And Jenny, so great to spend time with you. So thank you. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. Thank you.